God, we do want to lift up Jeff and Kim. We want to thank you for their presence in our church. We want to thank you that um, it's no accident that you brought them uh, to be a leader, uh, to, uh, to minister to the people that you bring through these doors, and we're grateful for that. And uh, thank you for the impact uh, that you've had through them to myself personally and to our people. Lord, we pray that this time away is just, uh, just such a refreshing time for them, Lord, that you would um, allow them to leave behind uh, some of the pressures momentarily that, um, that they experience uh, working in ministry, that you would um, just refresh their souls together as a married couple, Lord, and um, give them that time, Lord, to, to hear from you, to spend time meditating on your word and uh, enjoying one another. And um, so we pray that all these things would be possible and that you would just speak to their hearts and let them come back feeling encouraged and just ready to carry on with the work that you have uh, given them. Lord, we also want to lift up our time this morning, and as we open your word today, we know that we have a spiritual enemy that would have our minds wander and be distracted with things that might seem more urgent and more important and more relevant, but we pray that you, Holy Spirit, would instead show us the beauty and the hope and the comfort of Jesus this morning, in whose name we pray today, and we all said together, amen. Well, Brock is going to come, and he's going to read for us today our reading from Mark. Thanks, Brock. Appreciate it, brother. Well, as we go through the book of Mark, this is our third week into the book. We're going to be hitting sometimes longer portions of Scripture, bigger chunks, bigger passages. And other times we're going to do shorter sections. This is going to be probably one of the shorter sections that we do, verses 21 through 28. But remember, Mark opened his gospel three weeks ago, um, which is his book on the life and ministry of Jesus, by showing how John the Baptist who was prophesied in the Old Testament to prepare the way for Jesus the Messiah. He showed us how John just came in preaching a gospel message. And John's gospel message was one of repentance. And what he did was he baptized the people for repentance of sin. And then we saw last week that John got arrested. And if you know something about John, and we're going to learn a little bit more in a few weeks why he got arrested, but John was a little lippy. He was kind of a lippy guy. And uh, John gets a little lippy with the king, and uh, 
uh, he gets arrested, and what that does is it almost kind of provides now a way and in a, in a, in an opportunity now for Jesus to come on the scene, which we saw last week. And what Jesus does is he kicks off his ministry by preaching the same gospel message that John had preached as he was preparing the way for Jesus. So we saw Jesus preaching this gospel message. We saw him choosing his first disciples, again, just really ordinary, regular dudes like you and me uh, who answered the call and the cost of following Jesus by just jumping out of their own comfort zone to do something that they knew that they were called to do by following Christ. And in the next two weeks, as we move on, we're going to be looking at the authority of Jesus. This is going to be the first in in a two-part, in two weeks, where we look at the authority that Jesus used in establishing really what were three defining characteristics of his ministry on earth, which were these things. Preaching the word, casting out demons, and healing the sick. And so today, as, as, as we kick off sort of this two-week series within the series, um, we're going to see Jesus demonstrate his power and his authority over the powers of darkness. And, and then look at what that means for us living in the dark world that we live in. And we, so we saw right there, as Brock just read, uh, in the very beginning in verse 21, Jesus goes into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, and he's teaching. So Jesus enters this town, uh, Capernaum, which uh, if you do a little bit of historical uh, research, it was an upscale kind of coastal town in the northeast region of Galilee, and he enters the synagogue. Now, the synagogue was different than the temple. The temple was where worship happened, sacrifices happened, but the synagogue was the place where Jews gathered together to be taught from either local teachers or visiting rabbis. Jesus would have been a visiting rabbi. And what we got to remember is that right now, this early in Jesus' ministry, like the jury was still way out on, on Jesus. The jury would always be out on Jesus. The jury is still out on Jesus. But the jury was really out, if I can just keep just exhausting this, the jury was really out on Jesus. People were still wondering who this person that John baptized was. Like, who is this guy? They've heard him a little bit, right? They've heard him preach. They've seen the disciples he chose, which were just questionable at best. Um, And his message and his method, as we're going to see, are unlike anything else that they have experienced, right? They're unlike the other religious leaders at the time. And what's happening right now, what we're seeing is the beginning of Jesus starting to trend, if we can use a, a modern way of phrasing it. People are just starting to tweet about him, right? Jesus is just on the verge of going viral, for that, particular, for that particular time. So Jesus starts. He enters the synagogue. He begins by reading to the people from the Old Testament. But like everything else Jesus does, he just challenges. He challenges their norms is what he does. And he does it by teaching passages they would have been familiar with. But he did it with, it says, authority there in verse 22. Now, the scribes who normally taught in the synagogues. Now, these dudes, you, had to, you, had to underst- you have to understand them as being a little more like, like PhDs or like, or like lawyers, very versed in the law, almost like they were giving lectures. And, and what they did, their manner of teaching and preaching was that they taught by making arguments, right? By quoting other teachers, by, by quoting other philosophers, by saying things, like prefacing a lot of their uh, arguments by saying, well, in my opinion... So that's sort of how they would preach and teach through the law. But what happens is here is that Jesus comes in, and he just doesn't use those kinds of techniques. He speaks directly from God. 
He wasn't qualifying anything. He was saying, kind of like the prophets from the Old Testament, thus says the Lord. And it says the people were astonished at his authority. Another word for astonished might be they were terrified by the kind of authority that he brought when he spoke God's word in verse 22. And what's interesting is that when, whenever we're astonished or terrified by something, have you ever been astonished or terrified by anything? It's, it's because what it does is it challenges us, doesn't it? It challenges our norms, and it causes sort of a new reality for us. It's like sometimes when you go to a doctor and you know that something's wrong with you. So you go to a doctor and the doc goes, well, you know, it could be this. Uh, you know, it could be that. It's kind of hard to tell. So what happens is you get really angry and you go to a specialist, and they tell you, here's what's wrong, and here's what you need to do. It's a definitive word on the true state of your health because they speak with authority. They speak with truth. They get right down to what the problem is, what needs to be said. In Genesis 1, we learn something very interesting about God. And what we believe about Jesus is that he is God in the flesh. But when we go back to Genesis 1, you know what we learn about God that's interesting? That when he speaks, like things happen. When God speaks, things happen. There's an authority right? When God speaks in Genesis, what happens? The universe unfolds. The world appears. People are like formed from dust. Jesus was authenticating himself here as not simply a teacher, not just another guy visiting, getting ready to open the scriptures and just read to them, but as one who spoke like God himself. Because although God, although Jesus had been sent by God in the flesh, he was still God. In John 8, when the Pharisees accused Jesus, and the Pharisees did a lot of accusing Jesus, and we'll see this as we carry on through Mark, but in John 8, when the Pharisees accused Jesus of the outrageous claims he made about himself, uh, most notably that he was God, uh, he literally drops the mic at one point, and he says this in John 8. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So what Jesus is saying here, how he's establishing himself as he declares God's word, is he declares God's word as God, right? Jesus was God declaring God's word with the authority of God. Like, we don't want to miss that. We don't, we don't want that to be like a light thing in our heads. We don't want to glaze over this because what it does is that it causes us to check our own level of astonishment when we consider God's word to us. I mean, do we understand what's going on here? Do, do we understand the, the weight and the glory and the divine power of God's word? You know, my wife and I, we, we like to walk through Freer Field. If you guys have ever been to Freer Field, we, what do we call it? We call it the forest, don't we? And everybody laughs at us about that. It feels like a forest. I don't know. There's like trees and pine cones and stuff. Um, but when I walk through Freer Field, listen, those trees are there because God spoke, right? When I watch the sun rise in the morning and it illuminates the morning sky, that happens because God spoke. Everything in existence at this moment, everything that is breathing, growing, birthing, and being is happening because God declared his word. Not so much, not so much with our words, right? Gives us a little context about our own words in the word of, have you ever, have you ever tried talking to Siri? 
you know, on your iPhone? Like, how's that working out for you? Like, I don't even try, I don't even go there anymore. What, what about, like, when's the last time you tried to, like, voice text somebody? I mean, if I try to voice text somebody, it's like, it's like a series of profanities, and all I'm really doing is, like, saying, hey, what's up, right? I mean, that, that shows you, that shows you the, the effect that I have to command anything. Our words have no ultimate authority to supernaturally affect, alter, or create anything because we have no authority of our own. But the Father gave Jesus authority over all things. In John 5, 19, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, this is a statement Jesus made. He said, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And then in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus declares the word with authority. That's the authority that we bank on when we read the words of Jesus, when we read God's word. So Jesus declares that word with authority. And then, curiously enough, he gets an opportunity to demonstrate his authority in verse 23 when a dude with an unclean spirit decides to just kind of drop in the synagogue and challenge his authority. And so this word unclean spirit, we want to understand this word because Mark uses the word unclean spirit all the way through his book. And what he means to say when he says unclean spirit is he uses that word and the word demon synonymously throughout his writing. Now keep in mind, before we dive into this a little bit further, we have a spiritual enemy. We have a spiritual enemy named Satan who wants to silence the message of the gospel. That's his big idea. That's his game plan, that's his job, that's his goal. But he is still under the power and the authority of God, as we clearly see if we ever open up the book of Job, we clearly see that Satan, even with the kind of power that he possesses, is still ultimately under the power of God. Also important to remember for us for this morning is that unclean spirits have no power over, over Christians. Really important for us to understand that. They have no power over Christians because Christians have the Spirit of God living inside of them. And those two things won't exist together. Now, does Satan have some influence? Yeah, we know what Satan's influence is. Satan's influence is, is to tempt. Satan's influence is to uh, accuse. Satan's influence, as we sing in that old hymn, Before the Throne of God, when Satan tempts me to despair, is to despair, is to doubt, is to lose our hope is to forget about the sufficiency of Christ in our lives. That's the effect that Satan has to influence us to go down those paths. But Satan and his legions and his demons, they have no power to exist inside of us. They have no power to possess another Christian who has the Spirit of God living inside of him because darkness and light do not exist in the same place. So I just want to be clear on that as we get into uh, these texts because some of you guys really love passages like this, right? And some of you guys like to, like to think, you know, man, it was, it's a demon that's responsible for this. Like the reason why I keep sliding into this particular sin in my life is because there's a, de- so there's like a demon under every chair. There's a demon behind, you know, when you open up like every, uh, you know, you, you open up every door and there's a demon behind every door. Every sin that you commit, you might think, well, a demon is responsible for it. They're not. Guess what? There's enough wickedness in you where you just take care of it all by yourself. 
right? James tells us that the book of James tells us that. It's our own lust, it's our own flesh that draws us into doing those things which are not pleasing to God. So we want to be really clear about that as we get into this passage. In verse 23 here, as it says, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Another way to, to read that, have you come to destroy us, is him making the statement, you have come to destroy us, haven't you? I know who you are, the Spirit says, the Holy One of God. But then in 25, it says Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. Modern, modern translation of that would be Jesus saying, shut up and come out. I kind of like that. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, it said, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they questions among themselves saying, what is this? I like the inflection Brock put on that. What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. What's frightening as we get into this is that the unclean spirit acknowledges both the intent and the identity of Jesus there in verse 24. He recognizes something that we don't easily recognize. He recognizes that through Jesus, the kingdom of heaven has come to overrule the kingdom of darkness and destroy the power of evil. I mean, this, this, this unclean spirit even name checks Jesus correctly, right? There's no heresy in that. He called him the Holy One of God. And what we know is that in the ancient world, Calling out the name of your adversary was something that was widely believed to be how one gained control over them. So, by saying the name of Jesus, this unholy represent, representative of Satan tries to assert control over Jesus, the Holy One of God. But ultimately, he fails, and he fails immediately. Now, here's something not to miss. Although the people weren't clear on who Jesus was, this unclean spirit was crystal clear. Crystal clear. It brings us back to James chapter 2 uh, when James says, You believe that God is one, you do well. But even the demons believe and they shudder. So it's not just mere belief. It's not just mere astonishment at who Jesus is that saves a person. I mean, that's sobering. And this is a sobering passage for us. The Bible reminds us that there is a spirit world who is in opposition to Jesus and to those who follow Jesus. Ephesians 6.12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, here's what's interesting for us living in the time that we do is that many of us have been just inoculated against this kind of, of evil, right? It seems, it seems a little implausible, or it seems like it could be implausible. So what some of us do is we relegate it into the realm of, uh, of science fiction, right? It's kind of like Stranger Things on, on Netflix, right? We put it in the realm of Darth Vader and Lord Voldemort, right? That's the place it has for us. It can't be real because, hey... Brother, don't we live in an age of science and reason right now? Well, maybe. I, I mean, I, I think we do. And again, we're not, we're not against science at all. But science says this. Science says, if it can't be explained by natural occurrences or explanations, 
then therefore it must not be true. Um, of course, what that assumes is that there are no occurrences or explanations outside of the ones we define as natural, and that no person exists with abilities beyond our natural abilities who has power over those forces. Now, again, this doesn't mean that we devalue science as Christians. Christians should not devalue science. Scientific discoveries can actually enhance our understanding of God's creative handiwork, right? But here's the thing, and we don't have time to get super in us. All you science geeks are like, keep going, man. You're, you're just getting warm now. And I'm like, no, we got to move on. But here's the thing. Okay, for our purposes today, because we can go way deep into that, and it actually takes us off the primary point of what Jesus is driving at here, which is clearly not a science lesson. But here's the thing. We do not struggle with belief in demons or spirit beings. So you guys that are struggling with that, you know what? You're not really struggling with that. Here's what we struggle with. We struggle with belief in a God who raised his son from the dead. That's what we struggle with. Because when God opens our hearts to believe in the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus, you know what happens? Is our mind becomes open to believe in what God has to say about everything, which includes cosmic powers and spiritual forces. Because, you know, we have all seen, we have all witnessed a darkness that science, that people, that religion will never be able to adequately explain. So this is something where we trust what the Bible says. And again, who are we trusting? But we're trusting the God that created all things. We're trusting the God who sent his son into the darkness from the light to bring those in darkness back to the light. The Bible tells us that there are rulers and authorities who aren't flesh and blood, but whose intent is to destroy Jesus, in speaking about Satan in John 10.10, he said this. He said, the thief, speaking about Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So there's the difference between the intent and the agenda of God and Satan. 1 John 3.8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus is pretty clear pretty clear about what his mission was. This is the agenda. This is the authority of Jesus. He rebukes the unclean spirit in verse 25 by telling it to be quiet and come out. Now, why did Jesus do that? Why did Jesus silence the spirit? We see that as we go through the gospel. Jesus uh, repeatedly tells the spirits to be silent and to stop speaking about him. Well, we, we know that uh, an evil spirit is ultimately going to be speaking lies and Jesus does not want an evil spirit declaring to the world who he is. He doesn't want an evil spirit obscuring to the world who he is. Since we know that Satan, their ringleader, is the father of lies from John 8. So Jesus declares the word. He demonstrates the word. He shows his power. He shows his authority over unclean spirits. And it says in verse 38 that his fame spread everywhere. So Mark, what Mark is doing here in his gospel, he's given us a brief introduction to the ways that Jesus displayed his divinity. The ways that he showed the waking world at the time that indeed he was God who was sent in the flesh. 
So what does this, what does this spooky passage mean for us as we consider the authority that Jesus has over demonic spirits? How does this truth help us walk with Jesus? How does it help us walk with Jesus with deeper love and affection for him? Is the point, is the point of a passage like this for me to do like a, an eight-week sub-series on demonology? I know some of you guys would be like super jacked about that, but it's really not the point of the text. So what, what, what is Jesus trying to drive at here as we see his authority manifested over a spirit world that many of us have seen glimpses of as we look out into the world and we see things and we see an evil that is hard for us to understand or, or put into a category, well, well, what this does is it helps us to know, it helps us to understand of what is out there, that there is an unseen world, and what Jesus clearly came to deliver us from, whether we can see it and categorize it or not. So three things. Number one, Understanding Jesus' authority and power to cast out demons helps us not to minimize God's word in our own life. Do we realize, do you realize the power contained in the words of Jesus for all of life? Do we realize the power? Not power to control, not power to dominate. He didn't give us this power so that we could become politicians, but power to be humbled before the one who has authority over all things, which he is now in the process of restoring and redeeming. In John 1, verse 1, this is what we understand about Jesus and the Word. In the beginning was the Word, it says. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life, it says, was the light of men. And then it says this, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So darkness has power, but not over the one who has the light of Christ inside of them. So how does God's word have power in us? Well, when it's, when it's read, when it's prayed through, when it's meditated on, when it's reflected upon, when it's applied, when it's not just something we add as an addition to our life, when it's not treated as a recipe, when it's not treated as an instruction manual, but it's treated as the very words that shape our very existence and everything we are supposed to do and think and love. Some of you are powerless because the source of power is never tapped. Again, you know what kind of power we're talking about. This is not some Joel Osteen sermon. That's not what we're talking about. That's not power. That's not real power. The power is not contained in ourselves. We don't have any power. Have you ever had to work in conditions where the light has been really dim? I remember when I had to turn on the pilot light in our heater, which is underneath our house. just doesn't tend to be real, like, lighty underneath our house. Um, but you guys ever worked in conditions like that where the light is dim? Well, what, what happens? Well, 
You really can't see what you're doing. Um, but the power of God's Word is illumination. It's a lamp unto your feet. It's a light unto your path. The promises of God assuring you and reassuring you of the trueness of His Word. Because here's the interesting thing. Nobody speaks to you more than you do in your head. You have a constant running conversation with yourself in your head that really actually never ends. You're like, well, what about when I go to sleep? Yeah, what about that nightmare last night? That's like the conversation in your head that never, never, never dies out. So here's the question. What words will you speak to yourself because you are speaking words to yourself? Where will they find their source? The world or the word? And you know what's crazy? You know what the word? The word is it's contrarian. It's the very thing that helps us the most. It's the very thing that gives us the power to live a life through weakness and dependence on God. But because of that, it feels like the thing that's going to help us the least. Because it confronts our weakness, right? Which again is the very place where we find power. So when we consider the authority of Jesus, this authority he had over demonic spirits, it helps us not to minimize God's word in our own life too. It should give us affection, not merely astonishment for Jesus. You know, it's one thing to be astonished by Jesus, right? But it's another thing to obey him out of an affection for him. You know, Mark tells us that the fame of Jesus spread, but then we're also told in the Gospel of John that for many people, Jesus was nothing more than their spectacle. He was a spectacle, but he wasn't really their savior. In John 6, Jesus is preaching to the people. He says these things. He makes these remarks. And then look what the result is of these remarks that he makes. Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And then he says this, but there are some of you who don't believe this. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And then it says this. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They were astonished. There was something there that was drawing them to Jesus. But they never gained an affection with him. And you gain an affection for somebody by spending time with them, don't you? Right? Like there are people that I'm astonished by right? I mean, there's certain athletes that I'm astonished by. There's certain musicians that I'm astonished by. These are people with skills and abilities. But you know what's weird? I don't really have a true affection for them. I have an affection for their talent. I have an affection for their ability to entertain me, but not to change me, right? Jesus doesn't call for astonishment. He calls for affection for him, that we may know him more deeply. But an affection for Christ will also include and ultimately lead to a reverence and an awe. So it's not that we don't want to be astonished. It's just that we can only be astonished. Hebrews 12 says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So again, it calls this thing back to like, who are we dealing with here? When we, when we look at the words of Jesus and the authority that Jesus has, we have to ask the question, do we understand who we're dealing with here? A consuming fire. 
with an unshakable kingdom who must be worshipped with awe and reverence. And we gain in awe for God by beholding Him, by believing Him, and making Him our most beloved treasure above all other things. So the authority of Jesus, it helps us not minimize His Word. It gives us an affection over an astonishment. And then finally, it helps us not fear the darkness because Jesus has overcome the darkness. Isaiah 50.10 said, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of His servant? It's the, kind of the call. And then it says, Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on His God. The same authority that Jesus has over darkness is the same darkness that couldn't hold him in death. And you know what that tells us for those of us who are found hidden in Christ? That the darknesses in your life can be overcome because Jesus overcame the ultimate darkness on the cross. That's the message. That's the message for us here. Whatever has its hold on you, Whatever things that Satan is tempting you to despair in, whatever thing is dragging you and sucking the life out of you, it does not have a grip tighter than the one Jesus has on you if you are his. That is phenomenal. That is phenomenal truth for others. Because you know what that means? We don't have to despair. We don't have to despair. The same power that Jesus crushed the darkness with raised Jesus from the darkness. And we have that in us. What is baptism? What is it that we're getting ready to do here? But experience the demonstration of Christ's power in four individuals who Jesus came in and crushed it in them, who took away despair. Everybody that you see that is going to be dunked in that tank today. Everybody. All four of these brothers and sisters. We can say of them, it is well with their soul. We just sang it. Because it is now. It is well with their soul now. They don't have to despair. Because the word of Christ now has come alive inside of them. And it's a word that is never going to leave them. And it is a person that is never going to forsake them. That is the power of Jesus Christ unto salvation. That is the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we have such a great truth that we have such a great anchor in the authority and the power of your word. We are tempted to despair, but we know ultimately that because of the authority and the power of your word that has brought us from darkness into light, that ultimately, Lord, you have saved us from the darkness of our despair. And we can rely on you. We can trust in you. The things that chip away at us, the things that that threaten to pull us back down. 
into those places that we once found ourselves and that we still find ourselves occasionally, we know that ultimately they have no power over us because you are inside of us. We are hidden in you, as the book of Colossians tells us. So, Lord, we pray for the hope and the truth of this. We pray that these words would not return void, Lord, but that we would walk out of here remembering the hope and the power that lives inside of us and that in our weakness and in our dependence, it's where we find that truth and that power as we depend on you for all things. Lord, let us live out these truths as a church. Let us be a community that serves you out of the power of weakness, out of the power of dependence, remembering that we follow the same one that cast demons out. We follow the same one of who darkness had no power over. And now, Lord, we can bask in that light because you are the light of men that lives inside of us. So, Lord, let this truth be ever-growing, ever-present in our hearts, we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.